Welcome to the How Fitting Podcast, where you'll hear from independent fashion designers and entrepreneurs about how they grow their business, making clothes that fit their customer and values. I'm your host, Allison Haynes. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Frenchman of Fichu Bedwear. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Hi, Allison. For those listening who are just meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? I am a designer, a retired uh, designer of uh, graphics that decided finally to fulfill a lifelong uh, goal of designing um, apparel. This happened a few years ago. Um, I worked all my life in book design, um, and then I was a a librarian for um, an architecture firm, so I had a lot of materials that I used to deal with. Uh, For about four years, I've been working on apparel to um, mainly to to do sleepwear. And I had a chance to do this um, mainly because of uh, I have retired and I don't have to um, punch a clock every day, only my own clock. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> it's nice and it's scary. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I do want to get into that a little bit, but uh, let's go back. So it sounds like uh, you don't formally have like a background in fashion during your career, but like kind of related in design. Um, but what kind of sparked your interest in fashion then? Well, I, I do. I did take a lot of classes. I, I live in New York City. I'm very lucky to be able to take um, classes at FIT, the, the big fashion institute mm-hmm. of technology. Um, but I've I always wanted to be involved in um, design. And it turned out that in when I was a little kid, I made clothes for my Barbie. I think you must run into that a lot with the people you talk to. And yeah, um, not specifically, but that I, I made clothes for my 18 inch doll growing up. Oh, oh so very I totally nice. can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had a little, <clears throat> I had a little sewing machine that I still have actually. Um, and then when I was uh, in, I guess probably early high school or life magazine was one of the big magazines in my household. And it came out with an article on two young women who were in Paris, who had graduated from Parsons School of Design, uh, Vicki Teal and Mia Fonsegreves. And I, I was just taken with that. They, they designed their own clothes. They went to discos in their own clothes. They were living a life in Paris. Sometime later, um, during the Anna Sui show uh, that, I, that I saw both in New York and in London, Turns out Anna Sui saw that very article and it launched her on her quest to be um, an apparel designer as well. Of course, she really made it happen. <laughs> and it took it took me 40 or 50 years to make it happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So why, did, why, like, since you had the interest in fashion, like what kind of made you pursue, I think it's in graphic and like book design and then, um, being a librarian first, like why not jump into yeah. fashion? 
Why not jump into fashion? Um, I was a hippie <laughs> and I thought it was too frivolous. And I've, I've read that in many places where people said, oh, I, fashion's much too frivolous. Of course, now I'm a little more mature and I understand how it is just an extension of humanity, basically. And um, really, it, it's quite a legitimate and um, emotional um, and worthy pursuit. So, mm -hmm. and I needed to make a living. I was living in Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, I think a lot of possibilities did not occur to me. Um, I knew I had to make it to the East Coast. I made it to the East Coast. And that's where I saw a lot of um, opportunity. By that time, I'd already been launched into um, working with uh, images on paper. So that's that's where I pursued it. I, I loved every minute of it. And now I'm doing something different. Yeah, yeah. I, I do hear that a lot of, it's like, oh, I can't go into fashion. That's not like, you know, a career that you can actually live off of. Or I even had somebody in college, like we were just talking at our like work and learn job. We we're talking about like final exams and stuff. And like, I did go to fashion school. And so, you know, my exams were more, you know, jury critiques in the show and stuff. And she's like, oh, you know, at least I have a real major, like talking about like, oh, how my life is so hard because like I'm in fashion. I was like, what, you know, how is fashion like not a real major? Um, but oh, it's, you know, if I would have known there were things like pattern design or pattern cutting and um, I, I had none of that. I had no idea that. And I think I would have been, I think I would have really fit in there quite nicely. Mm -hmm. That's just something I love making the patterns mm -hmm. and but I didn't know that was involved. I saw patterns that you could buy, but mm -hmm. didn't they just fall out of the <laughs> sky like a miracle? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's um, in order to have some kind of a, I don't know, uh, an idea of all that, it has to be in the air. It has to be in the culture. And it just wasn't until I made it to the East Coast for me. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, obviously, yeah, it's still, I think, you know, it has the fluffy stereotype and, you know, everyone thinks, oh, you work in fashion, you're a designer. And like you said, like right, there's pattern right. making and there's, you know, industrial sewing and there's merchandising and, you know, there's all these things that aren't a designer, but are still in fashion mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know, the average person yes. doesn't realize like how much diversity of job roles there are in fashion I think yes and you and you need them all mm -hmm. it, it, it you know there's just and even if you're a designer what does that mean mm -hmm. it's 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 so interesting and I I love having something brand new to to learn about um at, you know these last few years mm -hmm. I also um managed to get to Central St. Martin's which mm -hmm thrilled me and I just took some summer classes there but um they actually made a big difference because one of them focused me on the practicality of what um the the sleepwear line that I wanted to produce what what was practical how how I should go about um handling it mm -hmm. I didn't follow any of those rules but <laughs> I should have <laughs> 
Yeah. So what, so you retired and you decided you're going to finally get into fashion. Did you always kind of have an idea for this sleepwear brand or was it more you wanted to work in fashion and the idea for the sleepwear came later? You know, I realized that I wasn't going to be coming up with a major uh, um, line. It's just, and I am not really interested in um, very flashy, you know, red carpet clothes. Mm -hmm. I really wanted something practical. And um, I found a niche because I couldn't find, I I think you probably hear this from a lot of the people you talk to as well. Um, I couldn't find what I needed. I Mm -hmm. needed a cotton nightgown Mm -hmm. that wasn't all frilly and fussy. And um, that sounded like a good niche. And um, I started in that direction. I never really meant to do anything but sleepwear um, for this particular project. And even a, even a robe might be a stretch. So I really, I really had a focus and um, that's what I concentrated on. And it was hard enough getting that done. (laughs) So what were like, kind of take us through the process. Like what did you do to start the brand? And then you mentioned it was maybe, you know, even difficult. So like, what, what, what did your process look like? How did you, what were the first things you did to start? Well, physically, um, I had a chance to rent a a space in a friend's basement. So I got like a little studio together and I bought a dress form and I put my old sewing machine in in the corner. I just started draping and um, cutting and making prototypes um, with cotton muslin, basically, or whatever I had around, but usually just muslin. Mm -hmm simultaneously I was taking classes on pattern making on draping on uh, sewing uh, industrial sewing so it it's sort of both of the the process dovetailed with my studies mm-hmm. at uh, so finally I had 10 prototypes and um, I knew I wanted a very simple nightgown that um, you needed no notions or trims for. And I wanted the actual garment to be the basic um, design for um, sleeping. It's a a machine for sleeping, I guess you would call it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted all the elements to um, enhance uh, how it looked, how it felt. So that's how I came up with the idea of um, having a um, the neckline crisscross. So I could just pull it over my head, no buttons, no zippers, no ties. Um, and then from there, I, I knew I wanted something very, um, very swirly and, and sleek. Uh, so I incorporated six panels and I did all French seaming for it. I also had a very deep hem to weigh it all down because cotton's pretty floaty. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was definitely my materials really spoke to me and told me what I had to do. Gotcha. Yeah. I work a similar way. I, I feel like we kind of oh, interesting. approach things in a similar <laughs> way in terms of uh, 
if I'm making something for for myself or whatever like I do the fabric has to speak to me like you know like it's kind of fabric first I need to know how it's going to move and what it's Mm going to be used Mm -hmm. for and the practicality of it you know and to be honest I mean practical clothes is what we live in every day you know and sleep in you know like it's in the end and I think the pandemic has shown that like we want something comfortable and practical that's what we that's what we live in um and so and it's so yeah, it's so interesting that um, I think my design background in um, not only graphics, but the architecture firm I worked for will tell it. They both said, you have to listen to your materials. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can torture us to make us do stuff <laughs> that you don't want us to do, that I don't want to do. But, you know, is your, is the product going to be what you want? Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I I'm, you have to start with, in my opinion, and sounds like in yours, you really have to start with your, your fabric. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it changes so much. And it's not that like one design has to be in only one type of fabric, but, but on, only right. certain fabrics will give you a certain look. So like if you're set on a certain look, you're, you have to know, you know, what that fabric is because, you know, trying to do like force a certain fabric on a design that doesn't it doesn't go well with just it it won't turn out how you want it you'll you'll be fighting with it the whole way like you said instead of yeah and I'm I'm still learning this yeah I I feel like it's it's really a process um I'm I'm still um absorbing why I, I only had three fabrics that I worked with for my nightgowns but they all functioned a little you know, acted a little differently. And it was very interesting to see what the final, how the final projects were slightly, you know, subtly different because of their fabric. Yeah. So what fabrics were you working with? Oh, I had um, uh, a dotted Swiss, which I loved, but it was very sheer. Mm -hmm. So that changed my design slightly for that, that version. I had Seersucker, which is my favorite, um, which is such a good, crisp, mm-hmm. snuggle, snuggly fabric. And then I had a, a shadow stripe, which was just basically a plain weave that had a little uh, more dense, dense um, weaving in it. So that it just, it was, uh, had, if you looked at it, it had a little bit of a, a pattern in it, but it really was just the weaving. Mm-hmm. So it was all, all in the weave. and. Um, uh, it was, it, it, I ended up be, having my favorites, <laughs> having my favorite, which was the seersucker, uh, especially since uh, using um, dotted Swiss, I had real Swiss dotted Swiss, and it was really beautiful and really expensive. Mm. But I did have to um, take into account that some people don't want to walk around and something that's sheer mm-hmm. if they have little kids around or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> nosy neighbors so I had to change the design a little bit but that was that was fun when I had to adapt something to next add an extra panel and then then it turned out I could add a uh, add a pocket which was very nice for everybody yeah yeah who doesn't like pockets <laughs> who doesn't like pockets yeah cool so yeah, so you made uh, these muslins. Um, so it sounds like you you did know how to sew, and had you already been taking classes at that point, or 
was all of this kind of new skills you were learning as you were applying it right away? I did know how to sew very, very basically um, from my mother. I never had taken a class, uh, but um, I did start taking classes at FIT and that helped. However, my sewing machine is 70 years old and it does one stitch and, and it goes forward and backwards. That's it. So <laughs> in many ways, not only was I just designing for my fabric, I was designing with my tool, my one basic tool, mm -hmm. even though a manufacturer could have done something much different and used different techniques. I zeroed in on the fact that this would be I, you know, as a designer, you, you can't just do anything. You have to pay attention to your materials and your tools. So this is going to be what's um, limited or enhanced, really, my design. And, and that's why um, I started sewing and I did my prototypes. But I, I never, I cannot sew as well as a factory. Mm -hmm. And I never will. So um, I mean, I'm sure if you did it all day, every day, like a factory does, you would, but possibly. Yes. I don't know. You have to, you have to be very, you have to be a certain type to make sure you do it right. And I did learn a lot of um, good habits by learning uh, at FIT, how to, how to sew on an industrial machine. And I had a fantastic teacher, uh, Juliet Solomon, who looked at every every stitch and said nope you have to tear this out and do it again so um it, you know i did learn a lot i just would never i would never put anybody in something that i would sew um maybe myself <laughs> in fact i have done it to myself but i wouldn't i just i just think the professional uh professionals do a, what the job they're supposed to do and they do it beautifully mm -hmm. so that's it's just one of my um, red lines in the sand there. Yeah, yeah. So you did the, the pattern and the, the samples. And then at that point, did you take it to a factory? Actually, no, I, I did a prototype. But then I took the prototype to um, a woman who I knew was a pattern maker and did samples. Um, it, it turned out she also did uh, small amounts of manufacturing. Gotcha. But um, yeah, I, I really didn't feel like I knew enough about um, doing, doing, having a setup for a real manufacturer. I, I just didn't know enough. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of like what a factory would need for, you know, for yeah, the pattern they, and everything. Mm -hmm. and, and they have tricks that I don't know about. So, uh, you know, and, and little finesse. Uh, way to finesse certain uh, way th things meet together mm -hmm. uh, on, an, on a garment that I don't know about. And um, so I went to Shiloh Bird, who oh, is yeah. uh, a, a legend in her time. <laughs> uh, un unfortunately, she was leaving town to go to Los Angeles, which where she still is. She handed me off to her, um, her partner who was very helpful. Um, and I think she has gone out of the business. I can't find um, what has 
uh, where she's ended up, but Stitch Looks was uh, where I ended up with one uh, prototype, which I took around to um, various um, small boutiques in on Cape Cod, who I thought might do a summer business in, in nightgowns. Mm -hmm. uh, then when I wanted to actually uh, have it manufactured, I brought it to... Um, Mint Collaborative, after discussing okay. it with uh, Janae St Stefanak of, of Stitch Looks, and uh, they they redid the pattern. They did a, a new um, sew by that I had to um, that I had to approve. Mm -hmm. Then they did the the pattern, the um, manufacturing pattern, and they. Uh, did the small a small um, a small run for me, so um, that's one thing I wanted to maybe impart to your audience was um, yeah. it turned out that it was a good idea to do more of a vertical um, a vertical manufacturing experience where wherein my pattern mm -hmm. my sample um, the um, the layout for you know, cutting the fabric, the, the marker, mm -hmm. everything was done by this one um, entity called uh, Mint Collaborative, which was, they were so good. They were so fabulous. And um, I only had 108 nightgowns to make and they could handle that amount. And this was in the garment district of New York City. So I wasn't getting any bargains, <laughs> but they did. They gave me a very good price because I, I think they thought, oh, here's a new person who really, who's really sincere and who really wants to do this right. And they did a beautiful job for me. Um, but I had some slippage between wanting, you know, getting a pattern from one person to, to a different person. So I ended up having the pattern remade. Mm. You know, so it was just like just like the communication between vendors, they weren't able to use the um, pattern or I think that they just worked in a different way and that's why they had to redo it. Gotcha. Um because they they knew what their uh factory was capable of and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it, it was an interesting lesson. I don't know. I, you're in you're in that sort of business yeah <laughs> so I don't know if you've run into that if it if you think it makes a difference um or if it's if it's possible even to sort of mix and match it is possible it just takes more um I think it really depends on you know the, the person the you know the brand the designer what they want to be handling versus you know how much they want to kind of be hands-off and outsource the process because you know sure as you know like when each each of your vendors you know your factory maybe your fabric sourcing your pattern maker sample maker marker or grader if they're all separate people like you're doing a lot of kind of project management and kind of you know like you said back and forth of okay like what format does the factory want it in and you know how wide is the fabric and you have there's a lot more pieces that you need to be juggled around and communicated between all those people. Whereas, um, you know, going with a factory or an agency that has kind of all these steps in house 
can can be easier um, if you don't want to be project managing all of the other parts of it. So mm-hmm. I think it works both ways. It's kind of like a business preference, personal preference, and maybe how much you're comfortable with the industry as mm-hmm. well. Um, I do, I, yeah, I can was... say that like, yes, it is true. Like the factories that I've worked with multiple times over the years, um, like I know how they like their pattern set up and I know kind of the quirks of their pattern system versus mine and, you know, how they want their documents sent and delivered to them. And so I can package it up exactly how they need it. Um, and not to say that other factory, you know, a newer factory they haven't worked with can't use my patterns, but it's, it's, it it makes it just a little bit easier in terms of communication when you have worked, you know, or that vendor has worked with that other vendor before. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And this was my first and possibly only time for trying to get something made in New York City. Um, And it just became apparent to me that it was a good idea to hand it off. Um, Mm. And I, I was so um, pleased with the, with the product that I got that now I'm sold on that, (laughs) on that method. Yeah. It's like, once you find what works, don't, don't change it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, it was such a simple um, garment and it's harder to do that than Mm -hmm. to do something that's has a, has a little, um, you know, wiggle room. Because if you got one thing wrong, it, the whole thing was going to be off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I, I just, uh, it's something for people in your audience, I think, to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, as you said, if you're, if you start getting comfortable with certain things, then maybe you can mix and match more. But I, I felt like I made the right decision to, um, go vertically for, you know, from soup to nuts with mm-hmm. this one um, studio. Yeah. And I'm glad you found, like, that's great that you found, you know, what wor- really worked for you. And it sounds like that you were so happy with how things turned out. And yeah, it's like, once you find that, you know, that's, that's a sweet spot. So, um, so I'm curious, like um, how living in New York city and like you have access to all the, you know, the garment district, how has that kind of affected your process in starting this brand? Like, did you feel like it was overwhelming? Like there was so much there or did it make it get easier because you could go, you know, visit all these um, places or kind of how did you connect with each of these, you know, your pattern maker and this, you know, mint collaborative? Um, what, did, what did that process look like as you were, you're finding these vendors? Well, it's interesting because um, FIT is the linchpin here. I met mm-hmm. a lot of people and sources through them. And of course, they're quite near the physical um, garment district, what's left of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, FIT also has a little fair where they have local uh, resources come in and set up a table and you know try to sell you buttons or, or pattern paper. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the, the famous flower um, um, maker is always there. I forget their name, but um, it, it's just talking to those people helped. And also I, I 
found Shiloh Bird through one of those fairs. Oh, nice. And she, yeah, and she and she sort of pushed me in a certain direction, and then I then I was going. Mm-hmm. And um, I did enjoy actually going around and interviewing um, factories. It's not so easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, actually, some of the factories have moved way out in Brooklyn. Um, you still can get there on public transportation. I don't have a car. But, um, and some of the, a lot of the places are still in the garment district. You just have to know which buildings to go up into. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I wouldn't have done this if I hadn't have been in New York. I wouldn't know how to start. Maybe in St. Louis, though. <laughs> um, I I know other there are other places where you can do this, but um, maybe because I just I took my classes here and I knew I I knew my way around the city that um, it it seemed like. Um, natural this mm-hmm. is almost natural this is how this is how you do it uh the fabric that i got was from a local vendor i went to all the fabric fairs the um very fancy ones the very humble ones but i ended up just um going to um a place that i actually saw on the street they actually moved later so right in the middle of my um when i was putting when I was manufacturing my nightgown. So that was really great. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, they had these uh, fabric cards in the window that I took pictures of. And that's that, that ended up where I got my fabric from and those exact fabrics that were pinned up in the window. So, so so cool. (laughs) It was really, and they're, they're really old school. I'm telling you, they weren't, I, they did have a computer, but they wrote everything out on a pad and they knew your name and they knew what they had in the back. And they just walked, they, you know, they got a big bolt of fabric. They walked it out, walked it up to the factory. Nice. There you go. It was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The fashion industry tends to be like that where it's like, it's becoming a lot more like technological now, but it's still kind of like a new thing for the industry where there's still a lot of places and a lot of really great resources and factories that are still, you know, very old school like that. And, and, um, and you know, them in your area mm-hmm. and, and you're, you're familiar with the factories in your area yeah. that uh, it's sort of family left um, old school family. And yeah. So there aren't a lot of, cut and sew factories in St. Louis for apparel. Um, Historically, we're a big uh, shoe manufacturing um, city. One of the, I I believe we were the biggest shoe manufacturing city in the United States for a long time. And so we have a lot of footwear brands still headquartered here. And there is more and more fashion coming back. um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So we have... um, several organizations that are really, you know, pushing that forward, such as, you know, Fashion Group International has a chapter here in St. Louis, as well as um, the St. Louis Fashion Fund has um, helped bring some of the, you know, fashion jobs and businesses back here. 
um, including uh, Evolution St. Louis, which is the world's most technologically advanced flatbed knitting factory. Oh, yeah. knitting. So that's ah. super fun. So we're getting a lot of it back, but we don't have as much as we used to. And it's still mm-hmm. a lot of historically footwear. Um, mm-hmm. Although there was uh, Junior's clothing actually was invented and was a huge market you know, manufacturing market here in St. Louis as well. So. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. So there isn't as much as I would, I wish, you know, there used to be, but um, there is a lot coming back here. It is kind of a, a big, small town in a way. No, I, one of the things that um, I thought I would be able to finesse, you know, with a snap of my finger I wanted my garment to be all cotton Mm -hmm. and I needed this coral pink thread, all cotton to make my nightgowns. I, you have to provide the fabric and the, and the thread. And Mm -hmm. um, if there were buttons or something, I would have to do that too. But I, I couldn't find it. And I searched and I searched and no one could tell me why I couldn't find um, factory size spools of all cotton thread. And I don't think they make it anymore. Basically it's all, uh, cotton wrapped poly, but Mm -hmm. no one told me. And I finally just had to settle for cotton wrapped poly. It didn't seem, it hasn't seemed to make any difference, um, except in my soul. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I, so there's still stuff you would think you'd be able to um, have an advantage of being in the garment district of New York City, but for some reason that didn't make a difference. Um, I I had to right away call people. I ended up just buying it, uh, you know, in one of the storefront thread places after I figured out that's what I had to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why was it important that you wanted all cotton? Well, one of the things is I wanted it all shrink at the same, um, uh, you know, level. Mm-hmm. However, of course, uh, cotton fabric and cotton thread, I'm sure, don't shrink at the same level. <laughs> Even different um, cotton fabrics probably don't. Yeah, sure. And I actually um, tested all three of my fabrics over and over and over, uh, washing them and measuring them to make sure they weren't going to really, you know, turn into barbing doll clothes. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't test my, my uh, thread. I just said, it's got to work. People do this all the time. Mm -hmm. So, and, and indeed it did work. I think one of the things they do it is probably for the tension. They don't want the cotton thread to break. Mm -hmm. I I don't know why you, maybe you can tell me why. um, And, or even if that's true, that they don't use uh, all cotton in production. They, they do sell it in small spools for um, quilt making and things yeah, like that, of course. and such. Yeah. yeah um, I don't probably know the precise answer, but I do know that like cotton thread um, breaks easier than a polyester wrapped thread. So that is probably a reason why it's maybe just the longevity of the seam and the you know stress of going mm-hmm. through an industrial machine and the tension of that because you wouldn't want it to be breaking all the time um so that sounds pretty like a likely answer to me but I don't know I, I don't know the the official reason 
Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, that was that was what held me up for several weeks. So uh, I had the simplest uh, pattern. I had the simplest fabric. I had everything was simple, but the thread was hard, and it held me up for many weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to get my uh, nightgowns into the factory at a very off time, mm-hmm. which I had determined was December and January, <laughs> and I think they ended up being made in mid-January, probably the hardest time for maybe not a factory, but for the studio that I was working with, because they did a lot of uh, samples for runway work, Mm -hmm. but they they still managed to do it and they did very well and very beautifully. Great. So yeah, I, I reading a little bit about your brand and your journey, um, I saw you had talked about like your target market and, you know, knowing what that is and then communicating that and the importance of, you know, you know, who your fit model is. So, um, I'm curious, like, can you share a little bit more about that and, uh, what was it like as you're developing this? Um, yeah. Who was your target market and how did that affect, you know, your design and the development process of it? Well, I, I understood right from the beginning that um, probably only people interested in nightgowns would be um, middle-aged ladies, uh, of which I was one. <laughs> and I, uh, unless, unless there's sort of also kind of a nap nap dress which yeah, I was they kind say, of that's, that I feel like that kind of like <laughs> prairie you know nightgowny house dress look is is back in style. Yeah. Well, mine is very uh, severe um, and it's, it's definitely not prairie, but the idea that you can lounge around in it. Yeah, sure. You could do that. Um, So I, I guess I knew that it would be uh, very niche and um, I expected it to have a very small customer base. What I didn't, count on was that uh, what people would pay for that Mm. niche product. They would buy it, but they had a price and they wouldn't, unless I could get into a very fancy store, I wouldn't be able to charge above a certain amount. Mm -hmm. And um, it dawned on me very slowly that I, I had to probably either get it before a very upscale um, audience, or I'd have to, um, sell them at cost, uh, and just say that I learned a lot. So what happened was, is I was unable to, uh, get it into Bergdorf's and I, um, ended up selling a lot of them from my studio, uh, during open, uh, open studio weekends, so that was it. It turned out that I was able to um, move all my merchandise, as it, as they say, mm-hmm. but not for the price that I wanted, and not not um, as um, not that it would allow me more capital to come rolling in, so that I could do another version of it. Gotcha. Yeah. So, what were some of the things that you like learned through this process that maybe 
if you have advice for designers who are just starting of things that looking back, you're like, oh, I should have done this, or now I know, um, you know, such and such. Well, I first thing I would say is, um, yes, do some research on what uh, what the what the market will bear for your garment. Try not to have um, you know stars in your eyes. The other thing you might consider is um, investing all your your uh, your effort into a sample and trying to sell it. This this is very hard. Um, no one really. Everybody talks about marketing, but they don't really talk about selling. Mm. And that's where you get the money. Not the marketing, you pay money <laughs> to make sure everything's right. When you sell, you get the money back. So I am very uncomfortable un, uh, with selling. And I should have known that about myself. I did send out a lot of samples to... Um, uh, editors and writers and influencers and store owners. And this is in uh, March of 2020. So mm. <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of my <laughs> inventory <laughs> went out the door just when um, just when things were really shutting down. I still am very happy that I got it made. And uh, of course, now I have the right nightgown that I want. <laughs> Uh, but I think if I had to do it again, I'd make my prototypes. I'd uh, worry about, I'd, I'd finesse somehow the sales. And then I wouldn't manufacture even a small number like I did until I had a couple of big orders. Mm. Um, I know people do it online. I'm not sure this, my market, my customer would be good for that. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that you have to um, take into consideration if, if, uh, you know, middle-aged uh, women would be going on online to buy a nightgown. Mm -hmm. Maybe they would, maybe I should have tried that. Uh, in any case, um, I have one left <laughs> of all the, uh, of all the, uh, the run that I did. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, someone wrote me and said, oh, I want two. And I said, I only have one. She says, well, I want two. And mm -hmm. so I still have one. <laughs> Bummer. That's good that you were able to at least like sell through your inventory, though, because I, I feel like a lot of not a lot, but sometimes designers who start out, you know, very ambitious and you know, get a lot of inventory at the very beginning end up stuck with a lot of it. But it sounds like you were at least able to sell through what you had, even if it was in different ways or took longer than you expected. Yes, um, I was able to do that. Uh, and I'm glad I, um, I'm glad I did. I, I wish I could have uh, spread the, um, I don't know, the, the gospel of, of, you know, a beautiful cotton nightgown mm -hmm. more than I did. But uh, I managed to, to get some out into the public and um, and I, as I said, I managed to get one for myself. Yeah, there you go. So was your, was your strategy all along, like, were you trying to sell wholesale to boutiques or larger retailers or 
if, if pandemic aside, if there hadn't been a pandemic, what would you have done? Definitely, I was, I think I was set up for a boutique or possibly um, a small niche of a, of a bigger store, mm-hmm. just because sleepwear is, um, is, is pretty, uh, it's almost old fashioned now. People just will wear a t-shirt and sweatpants or nothing, which is probably the, the cheapest thing to wear. <laughs> and um, it, it takes someone, I, when, I can't tell you how many times that I talked to women who are, who came in and looked at the, um, at my nightgowns and said, oh, my mother used to wear this. <laughs> and I said, yep. <laughs> and she still does. Don't you want to buy one for her? <laughs> So, um, that's, I mean, that's, uh, I was, I really was hoping to get, um, a few dozen, um, spread around into local stores, which I knew. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the other thing of course that was happening was these stores just couldn't make it through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And even before that, there was probably in your area too, there's a, retail apocalypse that just wiped out so many little um, apparel stores mm-hmm. um, in in New York and in Brooklyn. Um, I have a lot, my studios in Brooklyn and my sister lives in Brooklyn. So I was working in a, uh, two different boroughs. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what I was, that was, I, that's what I was uh, hoping for. I knew that I didn't, um, I couldn't afford to get some kind of sales agent and probably it was too niche of a product for anyone to take it on. So I knew it was down to me and um, I set up a website and I did all the right things, but I just did not sell through to in any quantity to anybody who would be reselling it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. And especially the timing of that, too. Like you said, in the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was kind of like, okay, hold down the fort, like, don't do anything new, reserve as much cash as we can, you know, (laughs) don't buy stuff. Um, Were you busy during the pandemic? um, It was slow, like, March through June or July, maybe into July into the summer Mm -hmm. and then ever since then though I've been the busiest I ever have been um so I oh good it it, it was kind of surprising I was really not sure how it was gonna go but I think in my case a lot of brands you know really cut back on costs and a lot of bigger brands laid off designers and a lot you know their teams Mm -hmm. like scaled down um their personnel you know or furloughed a lot of them and then didn't bring everyone back. And so I think part of it is like the bigger companies are more likely to work with like, like essentially like I'm a freelancer. Um, uh-huh. So I'm more likely to work with oh, a freelancer because, you know, it's not, there's no overhead. They're not paying for my insurance, you know, like they can have me kind mm-hmm. of come on for a project when needed, but then don't need to pay my salary when they don't kind of thing. Um, uh-huh. sure. And then a lot of designers, you know, who were laid off or just people who were at home, um, working from home during the pandemic, I think realized, 
you know, everyone was kind of like reevaluating, like, what do I want to do with my life? You know, <laughs> what am I doing here? Do I even like my job anymore? And so I think a lot of those people, maybe kind of what you did, were like, I'm going to, I'm going to finally do this dream of starting a fashion brand that I've always wanted to do, but have never like found the, you know, never actually done it. But like the pandemic and everything kind of shook up their schedules enough that they were like, okay, now's the time to do it, you know? All right. So <laughs> there's a lot more startups as well. So I think the combination of those two ended up um, in, in my favor. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah, excellent. It is, it's been quite interesting to see like the whole industry and how, how things are, have shaken out from this. Yes. And I, I don't know that um, anybody uh, truly in that in our industry um, can ever be truly sustainable, but I always feel like if you get if you are working on a small line with really good um, sewing and really good fabric, it's going to be sustainable because people will wear it for a long time, mm -hmm. and um, that's that's one one I don't know it's 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 a chance. This has given us all a chance to try to uh, lean into that sort of ethos mm -hmm. to, to make clothes that people will wear for a long time. And um, you don't have to get, you know, five out outfits uh, a week to make yourself happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just being like, I've seen in general, just people are more conscious about, you know, what is in their clothes, what, you know, what the fiber is, am I wearing plastic or am I wearing cotton? And how was that cotton produced? And who sewed it? You know, like, were they treated fairly and paid, you know, paid a fair wage kind of mm -hmm. thing. So I think mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. general, the general, you know, public is a little bit more conscious about those things and maybe curious and, yeah, curious about where their clothes come from and more willing to buy things that um, match their values. Um, so I, I've seen that too kind of come out of that, uh, come out of this last year and a half is just a little bit of a different mindset too. And the desire to support local, um, you know, when everyone's mm -hmm. like, oh no, my favorite local shop is like, might shut down. Like we need to make sure we support them during the holidays or, you know, buy gift cards mm -hmm. for when they open back up or something. Um, and so that's helped a lot of the smaller independent designers too, I think. I, I would think that that would be true. Yeah. It, it gives you, it gave us a little bit of a pause and a little bit of an opportunity and more time to think. So mm -hmm. it all coalesced, I yeah. think. So I do want, I am curious uh, what you mentioned at the very beginning about um, you, you were learned a lot like at um, San Martin and at FIT that, uh, that your teachers like had, had told you about and like had great advice that you didn't follow. So I'm curious, like, what are some of those things that you learned that you said you didn't follow and why? Oh, it's so interesting. I looked back through my notes through, uh, and I would, I heard things like make your sample and sell it. Don't put all your money into, you know, inventory and then not be able to sell it. And I thought, 
oh, here it is. They told me this. So that's I, that's one of the things that jumped off the page when I, I was mm-hmm. reviewing my notes. Um, and um, it, it's so interesting. I, I took um, three seminars given by this guy, Andy Ward, who worked in the industry for years and years. And now I think he just teaches those seminars at FIT. And he also runs the City Source um, Sources Fair, Resources Fair. Nice. And um, he he had, uh, you know, three seminars and one was um, trims and one was pattern making and one was fabric. And a woman who was in one of the classes uh, who had a French accent uh, raised her hand and said, oh, it's so hard to get answers out of these people in the in the garment district. They just won't help you. And um, she ended up being having a having a line that she sold in Paris and in New York at Barney's. And there were other two other um, two other people I followed um, while I was sort of trying to put my foot in the water here um, of a kind, which was uh, a, a startup that did not just apparel, but um, house brands and um, Elizabeth Suzanne, who mm-hmm. did her own manufacturing and design out um, in Tennessee, I mm-hmm. believe. And as of right now, they're all out of business. Um, They all had great uh, products. They had beautiful products. They had, um, they had all the pieces in, in all their ducks in a row. They were selling at the good place at good places or had a very good um, website set up or even had the money of Bed Bath & Beyond behind them. But it's really a tough business. And um, I think you need not just uh, uh, a good idea. You need a little luck and you need a lot of grit and a lot, a lot of things to break your way mm-hmm. and um, not to discourage anybody. It's, it's been a great, great ride. I guess you would say a lot of fun and I learned a lot and I've, I have my, my nightgown, as I said, but um, I think the one lesson it would be to, do your samples and see what, and see the reaction to your samples. Um, Unless you want to, you know, have a, have a interesting time um, getting rid of your inventory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like the realities of running the business, you know, Um, sometimes they're not as glamorous as it seems from the outside. Uh, it, it's it's very tough. It's very tough. You you know what it's worth, but will people pay it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's and of course it's your baby. So if they won't pay it, you are you are insulted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like you you have to learn <laughs> or disappointed or crushed. Yeah. yeah. You have thick skin and not and not take it personally. Yes. Otherwise, yeah. It's you it's can't. too hard. It's too yeah. hard. I. I always thought if someone had had come back to me and said, "Oh, this doesn't fit. I need a different size," I would just I would just crumble. Mm-hmm. But luckily, nightgowns I did have them graded, mm-hmm. but um, they're pretty forgiving. And that was another reason why I picked that particular kind of garment because I just knew I couldn't do you know six sizes or even four sizes. Three sizes was enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
to make sure someone actually could put it over their head and wear it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's next for Fichu Bedwear? Like where, where, what's your plan from here? My plan from here is to actually go into knits, which I hate, but um, I'm going to make, be making um, a healthcare garment that I'm going to make a sample of, and I'm going to try to sell to, you know, in my own way, which is, we'll see what it is uh, to um, companies that would manufacture. I'm not going to do any manufacturing myself Mm -hmm. anymore, but I like the idea of, um, a knitting machine, but I think I, I don't need a flatbed. I need a circular mm-hmm. one. So I won't be coming to St. Louis very soon. <laughs> well, if you ever do, it's pretty cool. I have been through, but um, not, not on the apparel end of it, which I can imagine it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is fun. Well, it sounds like you've really learned like so much through the process and had a lot of fun doing it, like learn new skills, kind of use some of your skills from your previous career and yeah, it just accomplished a lot, even if it was different than what you expected. Like, it sounds like it was a, it was a lot of learning and in the end it like set you up for something even better. So I hope so. And thank you for your, your kind words. Yeah. So I have one question that I ask everyone at the end of the interview, which is if you could communicate one value to the world through your clothes or your clothes you design, what would it be? I would like to tell people to make something that people need and make it really well and make sure that uh, people love it so that they will wear it for years and years. And um, then when they don't, when they've worn it to uh, rags then they turn it into rags so that we aren't responsible for more more trash on mother earth. Mm -hmm. That's, That's really all I have to say. Make something really good so that people really treasure it and um it lasts a long time Mm -hmm. yeah putting that thought into it and then in both making and wearing it yes yes well well, this has been so fun to hear your story and everything that you've learned and done and um your experience in in new york and i don't um i haven't interviewed too many people that are in new york who are able to kind of set foot and you know do all this like meeting and walking by the store windows so that was really fun to kind of get a glimpse into that world um where can people find out more about you and fichu bedwear online um i do have an instagram uh and i do have a website uh i don't have any more of inventory but they can read all about how I went through the process. And I think it's kind of educational and interesting to review. And also maybe they can take notes on, you know, what the steps might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. And I know you sent me links to those, so I will include them in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah. I really loved. Uh, I really loved my business, and I uh, I'm so happy to share it with you and uh, and your audience. Awesome, thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Hanus, and I hope you join me again for the next episode of How Fitting.